points now on this subject, the battle of the mind. The battle of the mind. And we've been looking at this thought of there are two ideologies, two frameworks of thinking that battle one another. One of which, as we've seen from James chapter 3, verse number 16, uh, that it is, excuse me, verse number 15, uh, that there is devilish thinking. There is thinking that is humanistic. There is thinking that goes against what God desires. Then there's another type of thinking, and that is heavenly thinking. We're going to look at that here in just a moment. And that type of thinking is so much different than the strife and the destruction that human thinking, human natural devilish thinking implores into our life. And I pray that tonight will be a help to you. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago in prayer that I am excited about what, the truth that we have. Uh, I, I feel like I am about to present a diamond to my wife or to my uh, a fiance once again, uh, as I did so years ago, over 18 years ago now with my wife and was excited to present her a diamond something of great value and of beauty we've looked at the dark backdrop and we've used that illustration over the last couple of weeks well tonight i want to present a diamond to you i want to present something that would revolutionize your thinking completely and entirely and it will truly change your approach to so many areas of life and i pray that you'll let the word of god teach you tonight I want us to look tonight at James chapter 3, verse number 13. Again, we've been looking line upon line, precept upon precept upon the, uh, through, the, through the books of James. And tonight we'll continue this journey as we conclude chapter 3. Notice what the Bible says in James 3, verse number 13. Who is a wise man and endued no with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envy and strife in your hearts glory not and lie not against the truth this wisdom descendeth not from above but is earthly sensual devilish for where envy and strife is there is confusion in every evil work but the wisdom that is from above is first pure then peaceable gentle and easy to be entreated full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Father, once again, direct our minds, direct my heart, please. God, I want to teach your word like you taught me. I pray that you would help me tonight to be a blessing to your people. Teach us your mind tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. In James chapter 2, it is an incredible portion of Scripture. We've studied it. We've looked at it. He focuses on faith, on acting on faith. And as James builds, and remember this is a letter, and so all that he has stated builds and culminates to what we are speaking of this evening. And he's speaking about acting upon faith, upon faith seeing what God wants us to hope and to believe in and to act upon those things. And as we have taught this year, it is faith. When we exercise hope, hope and belief, it equates to moving that muscle of faith. Now, as we come to James chapter 3, we see him directing or showing that how we can move in faith. 
he teaches us in the first part of this chapter about the tongue, about watching how we speak, about how we communicate with our words. And as he speaks of the tongue, he then transitions to the mind. And he begins in this text in which we've looked at to admonish us on how we think. That there is a war that wages in our mind and God wants us to think like Christ. And the Bible teaches us that, as James instructs us here, that there are expressions of how our faith lies, expressions of how our faith moves. And as he shows us the movement of faith, he is showing us what is natural when we look at the Word of God. For example, if I move my arm, my arm is meant to move certain directions. It's not meant to move every direction. It's meant to move a certain direction. If I try to move my arm 90 degrees the opposite direction of the way I'm moving it, it's not meant to go there. I can only go so far. When I was a boy, we as children sometimes would play a game it was just for us boys us men who can handle it where we would take one another's arm put it behind our back and then pull up and we would see who could do it the longest and when you were out when you were done uh, you couldn't move it anymore as far as it was too much pain to resist uh, or, or to take any longer you would cry out the word uncle now why would the word uncle i don't know but that's the word that we would state. Why wasn't it aunt or why wasn't it grandmother? I don't know, but it was uncle was the word that we would use. And we would move or we would move that arm in a direction in which it ought not to go. And it was painful. It let us know that that was not natural, that it was against what God had designed our arm and our elbows to move towards. Such is the case with faith god has a direction in which he designed for that faith to move and if we try to move it a different direction it causes pain in fact if you try to move your arm too much what the uh, direction it ought not to go what will happen a breakage a brokenness damage will come in why because it has gone an unnatural way and that is what happens when we as christians as children of god decide to adopt and move upon thinking that goes against god it is unnatural and it causes brokenness it causes damage and destruction and we have seen that james remind us and has taught us about the test for the source he exposed and showed us how we can understand through a litmus test as it were where our wisdom is coming from is it generating strife is it causing brokenness is it causing destruction is it causing damage if it's causing those things it's not natural to what god designed and it illuminates in our heart and in our mind that we are acting upon devilish wisdom instead of godly wisdom. He then began to tell us and teach us the outcomes of wisdom. 
he gives us a litmus test and then he shows us that if we move a certain direction that is opposite, if we move that muscle, we move that spiritual arm, what will happen? If we are moved by self-exaltation and we try to lift ourselves up and try to use bitter jealousy to exalt our own lives, James says what happens then is unrest ungodliness and an evilness that will come in and oh how often we see that and we see it so much today we see that self-exaltation of lifting up oneself and trying to gather all attention upon oneself or try to be better than others and that causes an unrest in the mind we have so many people today who struggle with mental illnesses, and I believe this is the core root of where many are struggling with today is because we are adopting that devilish thinking of trying to lift ourselves up. I didn't get the attention that I think I deserved. I didn't get the recognition that I think I am owed. And we begin those bitter jealousy moments, and it begins to cultivate in our life, and it will expose itself in ungodliness and an evilness that will manifest itself. But James here in the text doesn't just leave us with the darkness. He shows us the darkness. He shows us the blackness that come, uh, that's there with this kind of thinking. But he then shows us a better way. He shows us that diamond. He reveals, yes, that blackness, but then he demonstrates the beauty of the diamond of that wonderful meek spirit, that wonderful meek mind, that one that is seeking peace with God, seeking peace with others, and seeking peace uh, between God and man, trying to help cultivate and restore relationships uh, between brothers and sisters in Christ and encouraging others that do not know Christ to enjoy peace with God. And he begins to develop what happens with a meek mind, a gentle mind that is looking to establish peace. Tonight, let's look what James teaches us. Verse number 17. I want you to notice these words carefully. And we're just going to go line upon line tonight. But I want you to see these amazing truths here this evening. It will revolutionize your heart. If you were to grasp this, please, please, please seek this with an open heart tonight. The Bible says, but the wisdom that is from above. Speaking of heavenly wisdom. Wisdom that's from God. Is first, what? Pure. Pure. That word pure is the... Greek word, pognos, which means free from defilement, innocent, pure. It is something that is completely clean, something that is holy, something that is perfectly right. Solomon, as he began his kingship, and we looked at him last time, and we, began to, we saw how he began in godly wisdom and ended sadly with devilish wisdom then looked back upon his life and said all that i thought was valuable all that i used to self-exalt myself i found it was empty it was vain it was worthless it did not add value but before he trans 
uh, but, uh, but, but, but before he transgressed in that way, before he chose to go that direction, the Bible teaches us that Solomon operated on godly wisdom. If you were to look at the first nine chapters of Proverbs tonight, we don't have time uh, for to look at all of those verses, but you will see a commonness between those first nine chapters specifically. You will see Solomon speaking about the beauty of godly wisdom. He will hold it up as something that is a beautiful, precious gem. As something compared to fine metals and valuable materials. Something of priceless value that leads in a path of light. He illustrates it as something as beauty, as something in which is uh, to be adored and something to be sought after. It is of high, priceless value. And then he contrasts it in these same chapters. He shows the beauty of it, and then he brings to light the foolishness of human wisdom, the deception of human wisdom. He begins to illustrate this by using over and over again that of an immoral woman who offers herself and advertises her charms to fools and leads them to destruction. He illustrates beauty by something of great value. He illustrates godly wisdom by something of pricelessness. And then he shows that human devilish wisdom as something that looks glamorous initially, but then leads to destruction, leads to an end that is filled with regret, brokenness, and destruction. But he understood in the early days, in this first part of his kingship, that heavenly wisdom, godly wisdom is pure. It will never suggest or condone anything unclean or vile. It never offers a defiling thought. Think about that for just a moment. Godly wisdom never brings or entertains a thought that could defile oneself. Never does. It is sustained by the impeccable righteousness and holiness of God. This wisdom is built upon perfect nature. It's God's nature. It is pure and trustworthy. And this pure, trustworthy wisdom produces some things. Notice what it brings. The Bible says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. This word peaceable is a wonderful word. It actually means to be characterized by or promoting a state of wholeness, well-being, and happiness. Godly wisdom produces a wholeness to oneself. When we follow God's wisdom, it produces health, not only mentally, but physically. 
and even in our, in our interaction with others, it produces a wholeness that people look at and say that is a peace-filled person. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse number 17, Solomon writes, Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and, her path, and all her paths are what? Peace, speaking of godly wisdom. This godly wisdom leads to peace. David, when he was speaking to his son Solomon, addresses in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, Solomon has yet to take the, king, uh, the king's throne. And David, preparing the heart of Solomon, instructs his son. He says, and David said to Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. Do you know the name for Solomon actually means peace? And David says, I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. When Solomon operated on godly wisdom, God brought peace, a wholeness, a happiness a joy, a peace that passeth understanding that the world looked to and wanted and desired. It brings peace. Don't you want your mind at peace? Don't you want to go through this season without much anxiety and unrest? Wouldn't you rather have peace? God offers that with wisdom. God offers that with his mind. His mind brings peace in a busy situation, God brings peace in the midst of chaos. God brings peace in that in which is much calamity around us. God brings peace. Oh, how beautiful the name of Christ and how beautiful the godly wisdom is. This world strives for peace. God says, I'm the answer for it. The Bible teaches us in James 3.17 that the godly wisdom is first pure then peaceable, and then gentle. This word gentle there means lenient. It means merciful or tolerant of slight deviations from moral or legal rectitude. It, it portrays one who does not stand up for his rights, but one who is willing to make room for others. It begins to mark that of a man who is not a stickler for the letter of the law. What are we? What is it speaking of? We're thinking of godly wisdom here, and we're thinking of holy living as God desires. What does it mean one that is not stickler for the law? What is God saying here? Saying as we're speaking with our brethren, we're going to give them space for grace. 
In other words, we're going to be lenient and kind towards others, and others are growing in their walk with the Lord. We'll give them space to grow. Understand that when, a ch- when, a, when someone gets saved, they don't become the next saint, immediate and clean and pure, completely uh, removed of all wrongdoing in their heart and life in a week. It takes months, it takes years. I've been saved for 35 years now and I still have a long ways to go. I'm still working on me. (laughs) But God grows and matures us. And I thank God that he does mature us. Last night, my wife and I were talking and as we were talking, I mentioned to my wife, I've matured. And she had this wonderful comment as soon as i said that oh really you have i I appreciate that i I do i do the confidence in a wife is just incredible that must be the reason why god says a man is to marry one woman because he knows it takes just one woman to keep him humble i think that must be what it is but uh, god gives us space to grow and we ought to give space for one another to grow and that's what james is speaking of this is what godly wisdom does it allows us room to grow Aren't you thankful that the very first moment after you got saved, when you sinned, God just didn't simply end your life? Aren't you glad that he was merciful, that he was lenient, that he was gracious and gave you some mercy so you can continue growing in the Christian life? I'm thankful he just didn't decide to end me the first time I sinned, but rather he was merciful to me. This is what James is speaking of here. Godly wisdom will be gentle. It will be gentle with others. It will give room for others to grow. And by the way, that means if they're making room to grow, that means they're going to make mistakes in our presence. That means they're going to say some words they ought not to say. That means they're going to do and state some things that they ought not to do or state. What does that mean? Does that mean we should write them off? That's what the cancel culture says today. Just write someone off. You're done with them. You fall out. You never speak to them. That's not what God's speaking of. God says, be gentle. Give space for grace. Give room for people to grow in the Lord. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men. That word moderation there is the same word that we read just a moment ago in James 3.17. Gentle. Let your moderation, your gentleness be known unto all men. All men. Paul said we ought to be gentle with one another. Ace for grace with one another. Not everyone is where you are spiritually. And by the way, there are others who, are, who have matured in areas in your life that might be further than where you have grown in your walk with the Lord. It doesn't mean that God's not done with you. God is growing us. And as we grow in the Lord, God says, give some gentleness. Paul told Timothy, a young pastor, that one of the qualifications for a church elder was to learn this gentleness. Paul taught Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and given to wine, 
uh, excuse me, not given to wine, no, not, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient. There's that same word there again, gentle. God says, I want you to be gentle. I want you to be kind. Give space for others to grow. Be lenient in that area. Paul, or James continues in verse number 17, and easy to be entreated. That word entreat, uh, easy to be entreated means speaking of someone who is persuadable. It speaks of someone who is willing and open to adopting another position, belief, or course of action with, of course, sufficient reason or evidence. It is actually a military word that is speaking of in a context of a good soldier who knows how to receive and execute orders. It's speaking of someone who is willing to receive instruction and then, of course, to act upon those instructions. It is speaking of someone who is not gullible. That's not what the Bible is speaking of here. But rather fully aware of all the factors and is willing to act on all the factors in the equation of his decision. In other words, he receives what has taken place, he receives what is happening, and then he chooses what is the right and course of action. He is willing and open to have conversations, to speak with others who don't fully agree with him, and demonstrate the gospel demonstrate and illustrate what the word of god has to say it is speaking of an approachability speaking of a moment in which one can come and enjoy a conversation and be approachable and be encouraged with what god has instructed david as he dealt with his father-in-law he would become a man who would be hunted for his own life the bible teaches us that as he was hunted for his life on two occasions there would be an opportune moment for david to take out his vengeance as it were to take out the a retaliation or a moment of retaliation and on one of these occasions, both occasions, he did similar things, but God records it this way in 1 Samuel chapter 18. And let's look at it here tonight. In 1 Samuel 18, notice what the Bible says in verse number 14. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. David was willing to be approachable. He was willing to adopt what Saul had instructed and to carry out those things. And on the occasion in which God gave David an opportunity to retaliate against the intent of his father-in-law to murder him or to kill him, the Bible teaches us that David acted wisely. How did he do so? 
in 1 Samuel chapter 24, I don't have it uh, down. Let me just let me, let me look at it here. Give me a moment to get there. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse number 9, read just a couple portions. We're not going to read the entire thing for sake of time tonight, but I believe it's important to get the context here as we think about this of being entreated. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse number 9, and David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen that the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand, thine, uh, mine hand against the, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee. Yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. David said, look, I had an opportunity as he's addressing his father-in-law to end your life tonight. I had the opportunity to take your life as God allowed a deep sleep to come upon you. And I was there in that cave. I could have ended this situation, but I'm not going to lift my hand up against the Lord's anointed. God sets you as king. God, uh, God is the one that controls and directs your heart. And I'm going to follow and I'm going to lead, follow the instruction of the Lord. How does Saul respond? Look at verse number 16 quickly. And it came to pass when David had made an end, if I can get my words out here together, of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, for as much as when the Lord had delivered me into, the, into thine hand, thou killest me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now, behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that thy kingdom and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now, therefore, that thou wilt. Uh, uh, therefore unto me by the Lord, that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swear unto David, or excuse me, and David swear unto Saul, and Saul went home. Think about this for just a moment. For a long time now, Saul had been after David. David was now given an opportunity to end the situation. He would not, though, lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed, and he exposed himself to Saul and said, Look, here, here I am. I'm not going to lift my hand up against you. I've spared your life. I could have ended it, but I have not. And Saul said, I'm sorry. I apologize. God is going to indeed preserve your life. You will be king one day. Now, what did David do? Did David reject that apology? Did David reject what Saul was stating? No, he accepted it. In fact, he agreed upon it. 
He was not being gullible, as we'll see in just a moment, but he was rather being willing to be open and receiving of instruction. He was willing to be entreated. But notice what David does. But, and Saul went home, but David and his men got them up into, uh, unto the hold. Was David gullible to the point to where he just went back to his home in Jerusalem or went back to his home in Israel? No. He understood that there was a pattern that his father-in-law was prone to say one thing and then begin to do something else. And so what did he do? He stayed where it was safe. He would end up going into the Philistines and he would then end that conflict with Saul as Saul would no further chase him into Philistine territory. But he knew that Saul was prone or easily persuaded to give in to the temptation of bitter jealousy. And David acted wisely. He was willing to be entreated. He was easy to be entreated. He was easy to be taught and to go along with others. He was easily workable with. And he acted wisely accordingly. David acted very wisely. He acted with godly wisdom in that he was entreatable. The Bible continues in James chapter 3, verse number 17. Notice this, full of mercy and good fruits. James here combines two principles together. Full of mercy and good fruits. What, what mercy exists in the philosophy of a man such as Nietzsche? who pictured a world based on blood and barbarism and whose ideal superman was Cesare Borgia, Nietzsche said that Christianity was one immortal blemish upon the human race. What mercy is there in Darwinism, which Huxley hailed as a working hypothesis for atheism? Evolution says that might is right. It promotes the survival of the fittest. It is a philosophy that gave the world two global wars in one lifetime. What mercy exists in the philosophy of, a philosophy of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, who sought to abolish great truths common to all society and build a world based on atheism? What mercy did Lenin and his heirs ever have in imposing communism on Russia and much of the rest of the world? What mercy exists in Hitler's Mein Kampf with its strident demand for the extermination of worldly Jew, or, or, of world Mercy and good fruits and godly wisdom come together. Each one of these claim it is merciful, it's sympathetic, it's sympathetic towards one view, but it is not coupled with good fruits. Oh, they claim to be merciful in one area, but they, do, uh, but they are not coupled with that of which is a good fruit, a good nature. These, in godly wisdom, are coupled together mercy and good fruits. 
This word mercy here is the Greek word eloos, which means compassion shown towards offenders by a person or authority. In other words, it's an acting mercy. It's not simply pity. Pity looks at someone in an unfortunate circumstance and says, that's too bad, that's unfortunate. Whereas mercy moves one to action. Mercy sees some unfortunate circumstance and moves to act upon the meeting and to help in that circumstance. It's not simply just driving down the motorway past an accident, refusing to help when no one is around, but rather it's stopping and helping. That's what mercy is. But much of what the world speaks of is pity, which does nothing. The story is told about Napoleon, who had condemned a man to death. This man's mother began to appeal to the, rem- to, to the emperor for a pardon. Napoleon replied that this man was in, caught in his second offense and that justice must be done. But the mother continued persisting. She said, I'm not asking for justice, but for mercy. The emperor looked at this mother and said, but he doesn't deserve mercy. She continued by saying, I would not, uh, he, uh, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And what I ask for is mercy. Napoleon then gave in to that mother's wish, that mother's request. Spared that man's life. That was mercy. Mercy is God's nature. I love that. It's not second nature. It's not something that is a learned thing, but mercy is in the very character of God. He is the one that is deposed to act upon mercy. Thank God for that. God's wisdom and godly wisdom acts upon mercy. It is sympathetic. It is something that moves one to action. Thus, we celebrate Jesus Christ and his coming to this earth in this life, in this season. The very birth of Christ was a merciful moment in which God gave his son to be the savior. But mercy and good fruits are coupled together with godly wisdom. I think of of David once again as we've been looking at David and Saul as David ended yea that war in essence with Saul and his family and David's kingdom had been established God began uh, David began to search out a man to someone in Saul's family whom he could show the kindness of God towards he was made aware of a man by the name of Mephibosheth a man who was lame in both feet and unable to care for himself properly. When David heard of the situation, he sent a man by the name of Ziba to go and get him. And Ziba began to bring Mephibosheth before him. And David, in his wonderful mercy as a king, began to establish good fruits upon that man. He would then restore the lost estates to Mephibosheth. He then adopted Mephibosheth into his own family and even set him at his own table. He began to show great good fruits, mercy and good why? Because he was a godly 
wise king. He was a wise man. And as Paul put it, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God begins to move. What does it begin to move? The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse number 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. Mercy and good fruits. They come together in godly wisdom and they begin to demonstrate a philosophy, a heart, a a life that truly exhibits the very good nature of God. Then I love this in verse number 17 of our text tonight. It says, without partiality. Without partiality. That word partiality is speaking of a discriminating or discrimination Remember in James chapter 1, verse number 27, when the Bible teaches us that James was admonishing them to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Remember in James chapter 2, in which he admonished the brethren to not show partiality or to show favoritism towards those who had wealth or those who had and those who did not have means. James begins to teach us further in this. He says godly wisdom will have compassion based upon the individual, not upon their circumstances. In other words, if there is mercy needed, if there is a gentleness that is due, if there's there's a a, a wise person will not show a discriminating viewpoint upon one person, no matter if they have a different culture, no matter if their skin might be a different color, no matter if their finances are different than ours, higher or even lower, but we show all people the same generosity, all people the same kindness, it is excuse me it is an undiscriminatory action and without partiality without a dividing and a discriminating viewpoint but looking upon people as people with needs and helping and encouraging one another no matter who they are no matter what echelon of society they are no matter what they uh, uh, what's in their background no matter where they've come from people are people and they are to be loved And God desires us to use godly wisdom to love without discrimination. He continues, without hypocrisy. That word hypocrisy is speaking of an actor playing a part on a stage. It's speaking of someone who says one thing in front of a group of people as acting upon a character in which he wants to portray and as others are watching. But then when no one sees him, when no one sees what he is doing, he acts in a completely different way without hypocrisy. In other words, godly wisdom is transparent. It's open. It acts the same when no one is watching and when others are watching. It acts the same. Why? Because that man is based upon character. Character is what a man does when no one is watching. It's not putting on airs. 
It's not showing one thing on one to one group of people, something completely different to another, but it is rather is acting in a transparent and an open way. Godly wisdom is not worried about hiding because you are who you are. And as God establishes you in his, in his identity he has for you, you can be open and transparent. You can go forward knowing that you're resting upon the word of God and upon the truth of Christ. You're not worried about who might see you on the next day because you acted the same in church as you did at work. You acted the same with your family as you did when just your mates are around. You're acting the same when you're walking down the street and no one watches as you see an opportune moment in a window. It acts the same as if your wife was standing right there. It acts without hypocrisy. Godly wisdom is open and transparent. And the result of this wisdom the result of this beautiful diamond is what? Look at verse number 18. We're going to end with an illustration tonight. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace. Of them that make peace. The result of godly wisdom is one enjoying the fruit of making peace. Why would one make peace? Because they are Christ-like. They are Christians. And oh, we need more Christians today. We need more people who, have, who not only say they are saved, but they are Christ-like. They have that Christ-like nature. They are thinking like Christ thinks. Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, in verse number 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I love this thought, that God, Jesus Christ, did not just simply come to bring peace, but he came to make peace. Jesus Christ is the only one that can make peace. And as children of God, we too can be peacemakers you see he did what was necessary he did what was needed in order for peace to be made jesus christ is not simply a peacekeeper he is the peacemaker and as children of god as christians we too are to be called peacemakers we ought to be able to make peace with godly wisdom that could not be made without the wisdom of God. We ought to be peacemakers in our relationships with others. Jesus demonstrated this so powerfully. As James said, godly wisdom is first pure. Oh, how true it is that it was first pure. Because Jesus Christ, as the model of wisdom in whom we look to, was pure. The Bible teaches us in John chapter 8, which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Jesus Christ had this testimony of the Father speaking to him from a voice from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
Jesus' life was pure. It was without sin. There was no error in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Peter testified of this very thing, that he was a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ was pure. Godly wisdom is pure. Jesus Christ lived a pure life. It was pure thinking. Jesus Christ was peaceable. That doesn't mean that he was a pacifist. Of course, on two occasions, he forcibly cleansed the temple of those who defiled and debased it. Nor did he hesitate to tell people unpalatable truth in particularly pungent and unforgettable forms. And yet, he made peace. He spoke to the daughter, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. He is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9. It was the herald angels singing to the shepherds on that Christmas night, that Christmas morn, as it were, said, peace on earth. He brought peace. The Bible tells us that as, that as he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, on that colt, that people cried out, peace, peace was what he cried out as he appeared in the midst of the disciples after he resurrected from the dead. The Bible teaches us that God is the God of peace. Jesus is peace. He is peaceable. He brings and makes peace. No one said it arguably better than Paul, though, in Colossians chapter 1, when he said, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Thank God for the peace that God brings. Jesus demonstrates a pure thinking, pure mind, pure life, pure wisdom, and also a peaceable wisdom. Jesus, uh, Jesus demonstrated gentleness. He gently dealed, uh, dealt with the woman taken in adultery and with the woman who wept at his feet in the Pharisee's home. When Peter was backslidden and in a broken state, Jesus gently approached him, restoring him. Jesus ministered to little children. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. He was gentle. The Bible speaks this of the testimony of Christ and his gentleness. A bruised reed shall he not break. Little use was that of a bruised reed. And yet Jesus handled those who were bruised in life, hurt in life, with such gentleness and care. And smoking flax he shall, not, uh, shall he not quench. The Bible tells us that when those who ha whom had no further use in society or society had no further use for let me say it that way that smoking flax that was used it was gone it was useless as the world would see it as society would look upon it jesus gently handled and jesus gently instructed and jesus gently dealt with them jesus was easy to be entreated he was approachable 
The Bible teaches us in John chapter 6, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Jesus was approachable. No one was cast away from Christ. When there was a moment of delay and Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, Jesus was willing to be delayed. He was willing to be approached, to be entreated. And he went and dealt, and of course healed Lazarus, rising him from the dead. He did not turn anyone away. As the great physician dealt with a myriad of illnesses and diseases, and he did so with no charge and no one going saying this is beyond hope. This is a situation that cannot be cured. Jesus is the one that handled each one. Even the thief on the cross as he hung on the cross next to Christ and he entreated Christ, approached Christ. What did Jesus do? He said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He was easy to be entreated. He was easily approachable. He was easy to come to. Jesus was full of mercy. When two blind men called out to him, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. He indeed did have mercy upon them and healed them. When the Syrophoenician woman found, uh, a woman found mercy along with the two blind men, in Jericho from Jesus Christ. The father who had a demon-possessed boy found mercy with Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 2.17 that he is a merciful and faithful high priest. He was full of mercy and of good works. When Peter, thinking about the life of Christ as he testified to a man wanting to know how to be saved he looked at a man named cornelius and testified that jesus went about doing good john the beloved john said all the world could not contain the books that could be written to describe what jesus did here on this ministry in just three and a half years he was full of good works Godly wisdom is found without partiality in Jesus Christ. He was gracious and true with the woman at the well who had run through some half dozen husbands as well as with religious aristocrat Nicodemus. He was as kind to the woman with the incurable hemorrhage as he was to the ruler of the synagogue. He was as earnest with Judas as he was with Simon Peter. He loved his unbelieving brother James as much as he loved his disciple James. He was without partiality. There was no discriminating with Christ. Anyone would be treated the same. He was without hypocrisy. Jesus Christ was absolutely transparent, completely, even disconcertingly transparent and honest. He told the religious Nicodemus, a member of the ruling class, that unless he were to be born again, he would not even see the kingdom of God. He told the powerful Pharisees bluntly that they were hypocrites, and then he painted their portrait for them in vivid colors in Matthew 23. But there was never any pretense, nothing put on about the Lord Jesus. 
He was always himself, as fair as the morning and as bright as the day. His life was an open book, a living epistle, known and read of all men. He sowed the fruit of righteousness. He truly was incarnate wisdom. Jesus Christ is the one that we could look to for godly wisdom. He is the one that we could look to and state, I want a life, I want some wisdom that Christ has. That wisdom is available to you and I today. You have a choice this evening. You can choose the dark veil and with it bring strife and brokenness. Or you can choose that beauty of godly wisdom. That diamond that shines and glistens. That which is desirable compared to above the most precious gems. It is truly a treasure. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse number 3, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus Christ is the one that we can look to for the beauty and the treasures of wisdom. Godly wisdom brings peace. It makes peace. Let me ask you tonight, in your mind, is it at rest and peace this evening? Are you resting in Christ? Or is your mind full of strife and unrest, chaos and confusion. May I encourage you tonight to go to the godly wisdom of Jesus Christ. There's a battle for our minds going on. One has the answer. His name is Jesus. May I implore you tonight as children of God,